Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. I know we've been in First and Second Samuel. We probably were in First and Second Samuel for about a year and a half, so I'm sure getting into the Gospels uh, will be, uh, be a change for us. Um, but uh, Gospel of Luke, Luke 1, 1 through 4 is where we'll, where we'll be. Uh, this morning will be more of an introduction uh, for where we are uh, in Luke's Gospel and then where we're going in Luke's Gospel. So Luke chapter 1 is, is where we'll be, verses, as I said, verses 1 through 4. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And uh, I will ask if you're physically able to do so and you found your place, uh, stand with me one more time, please. Uh, as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word, I pray we hear the word of the Lord given to us this morning. The word of the Lord given to us is this. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration, or that's a narrative, of those things which are most surely believed or fulfilled among us, even as they delivered them to us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write, into, to write to you in order, that's an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the certainty of those things wherein or in which you have been instructed. Let's pray. Father, as we now uh, have uh, uh, sung of your greatness and we have uh, given in response to your grace to us, um, in offering, we have reminded ourselves of you, of, of how great you are. So now let us set your word before us that Christ can be, uh, that the gospel may be clearly seen, that Christ may be clearly preached, and that you may be clearly worshipped and glorified in all of your splendor as you have revealed in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. you can be seated. So, <clears throat> throughout history, different writers have written for many different reasons there have been many different reasons why writers write, many, many different reasons that have motivated these various uh, writers to write down the information that they, that they have. Uh, some of them write from a, just a, a desire to record information, so more historic uh, information. So we have lots of information that have been passed down to us throughout the centuries, right, as we have read recorded history. Um, others uh, do so for self-expression or because of things that they have learned that they feel like would be important for other people to know and to understand, to be able to connect their ideas with their readers or to leave a legacy. So there's lots of different reasons why lots of different writers write, and I'm sure that there are as many motivations as there probably are writers. And so writers produce all types of different books on all kinds of different subjects, anything from mystery and autobiography, biography, history, uh, uh, Bible studies, uh, to science fiction, which happens to be my favorite. But the same is true for the gospel writers, though. I don't know if you've thought about this, but each gospel writer wrote the recorded history of the Lord Jesus Christ while on earth for a different reason, for a different purpose. Matthew, to declare and to proclaim that Jesus is the king of the Jews who has come. Mark, to remind that uh, he is the servant of the Lord. Luke writes, for a little bit of a different reason, as we'll talk about here in just a moment, I will simply say Luke writes to remind his readers that he is, Jesus is the son of man. And we'll talk about what, that, what he means by that in just a few moments. 
And John, of course, rewrites and records for us that Jesus is the Son of God. And so every writer has written in the Gospels, the four different Gospels, a different perspective from which they, they wanted us to see. And so that's why we have four Gospels. So if you've ever wondered, why do we have four Gospels? It's because that all four Gospels, when placed together, form an exact and perfect picture for us of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry here on earth. So historically, Luke is writing in the midst of the, of the, of the rise at this point of the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire will not collapse for a few hundred years later at this point. And he writes uh, mainly centered around the, what we would today call the Middle East, right? We, he's writing from this region. We know a little bit about Luke we know, for instance, that uh, we know his name, right? We know that he's Luke, and uh, Luke is a, uh, would be a, a Gentile name or a Roman name. Um, we know that he is a physician, and we know that as you read the gospel, or the the the, uh, the the book of Acts, we read that he was, in fact, at least partly a companion of the Apostle Paul for at least a number of years. We know that we're not sure if he was Gentile, though a lot of people do believe that he was Gentile. I think it is just as likely that it's possible that he was a Hellenistic Jew, that is a, a Jew that, that, is, that he is someone who adopted and accepted the, uh, the, the, the customs of the Greek culture and the Roman culture around them, but still held to a very Jewish custom. But whether he was a Jew or not, he, the fact is, is that he wrote for a largely non-Jewish audience. He wrote for a man by the name of Theophilus, and I do believe that it was a man. I know there's some debate as to this, but I believe that he was a man, Theophilus, uh, who was a young believer, who was a, a new-ish believer, uh, maybe, a, maybe a couple of years old, because he even states here the purpose and the reason that he wrote. He says, I want you to know, Theophilus, that what, I, what you've been taught and what you've heard and what you believe is true. And so he wants the Gentile Christians, along with Theophilus, to believe. And it is very likely, I, I personally believe, though there are certainly other theories out there, I personally believe that Theophilus was, in fact, a Roman, a younger Roman uh, civil-leading authority. And so Theophilus was engaged in Roman life, clearly being a Roman with the name Theophilus. Uh, and so we know that uh, we know that he was, in fact, the target, along with the other Gentile Christians, the target. But as we as we look at Luke, there's some things that begin to come out for us. There's some there's some things that begin to that some themes, if you will, that begin to that begin to sort of uh, drive us uh, directly to um, sort of uh, to see, I guess, what what exactly uh, Luke was wanting us to understand. The first is that Jesus is presented as the Son of Man. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, it is interesting that this is Jesus' favorite title in, the, in all of the Gospels, repeated, I believe, 88 times throughout the Gospels. But of the 88 times, the most, 25, here in the Gospel of Luke. You say, well, what purpose and what, what purpose does that have to do with anything? Well, in Luke's telling us that Jesus is, and using Jesus' citation of this phrase, Son of Man, it is important for us to understand that what Luke is doing is that he is drawing direct connections between Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Mashiach, and the one who was promised of the line back in Daniel 
Daniel talks about the Son of Man and the kingdom being given to the Son of Man in two different places. Uh, in Daniel uh, 7, uh, and then I, I didn't write the other one down, but I believe, uh, I believe in Daniel 7, and I believe uh, maybe in uh, another place, uh, I don't remember right now off the top of my head, but I know for, I'm pretty sure for in Daniel 7, there is a place there that references the Son of Man. And Luke wants us to understand that there is Jesus who came, right? You'll hear people talk about, well, you know, uh, you know uh, this was something that developed really, really, really late in, in the life of people believing in Jesus. But Luke was written in the mid-60s at the latest. The mid-60s at the latest, 8064, 8065. This, this belief was always there that Jesus is and was always the Son of God, the Messiah, the Mashiach of Israel and the world, the nations. And so we know that Luke is writing for us to help us better understand that Jesus is the Son of Man, the one promised, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the omniscient, omnipotent God revealed in human flesh. And according to his human nature, he is then the incarnate Messiah. And he is the one who needs food. He is the one who needs, who grows in knowledge. He is the one who becomes tired. He is the one who grows in uh, grace. He is the one that is presented throughout the Gospel of Luke, that is perfect the perfect man and in that sense he is the last Adam as Adam as we are all born into Adam right every one of us man woman boy and girl will ever be born we are all the sons and daughters of Adam Luke writes for us to be reminded that those who are now in Christ no longer have Adam as their spiritual head their federal head but we now have Christ as our spiritual and federal head because he is the one who succeeded where Adam, our first father, and Eve, our first mother, failed. And so he is presented here as this omnipotent, sovereign king who has come. This man, this God-man. And in that sense, Jesus is one person who possesses then two natures, as we'll see in the, throughout the gospel he is divine, he has a divine nature and a human nature, and each nature retains its own unique properties, and yet these two natures remain dis- and while these two natures remain distinct, they are thoroughly inseparably united in one person, Jesus Christ. But there's a second theme I think that comes bowling out at us, and that is this. That is that salvation through this Savior, this perfect man, is for Jew and Gentile alike. Why is it that Luke presents a second genealogy other than Matthew's? Well, it is to show the perfectness of Jesus as the Son of Man. Why is it that, what else is it that we can read when we read in Luke 4, for instance, that Luke spends an inordinate amount of time for us to understand the fulfillment, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies? Or in Luke 7, where he begins talking about faith and in how salvation is applied through Christ by faith. Or what about in Luke 15, where he spends, Jesus spends time after time after time telling parable after parable after parable, highlighting God's grace and God's salvation to the nations, not just the nation of Israel. But then another theme, the third theme that comes, comes barreling out, I think, of the Gospel of Luke for us, 
is the fact of the kingdom of God. And while certainly Matthew spends a lot of time talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, right? They're both, they're both the same thing. I know some people disagree with that, but they are in reference to the both of the same thing, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Uh, one focuses on one part, one focuses on the other, but Luke spends an inordinate amount of time of speaking of the kingdom of God. Let me show you what I mean. In Luke 9, in chapter 9 and chapter 17, Jesus presents that the kingdom of God is both a present as well as a future reality. So there is, a, there is an aspect in which we speak of the already, but the not yet. The already, that is that it's an already reality for us, and yet it's still something that is coming. He tells parables about the kingdom consistently. Over and over, he tells, in, for instance, in Luke 8 about the sower. Or in Luke 10, the Good Samaritan, which is unique, which is a unique addition for Luke and the prodigal son in, verse, in chapter 15. And he tells these parables for us to better understand the Father, for us to better understand who and what God is actually like. Another theme that comes, comes out to us from the Gospel of Luke is the clear and unadulterated and uncompromising and unapologetic reality of God's sovereignty. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, for instance, in Luke 2, God is completely sovereign over all of human history. There's no doubt, and throughout the genealogies, and then through the through the uh, through the through Herod's uh, uh, seeking to kill Jesus, there is a reality uh, that comes for us that God is ultimately sovereign over history, guarding it and guiding it according to His own perfect will, and that Jesus in Luke 22, it, as as the Son of God uh, sent by the Father willingly, He submits to the Father's will. Or what about the confidence in God's sovereign plan? We have Jesus in the garden, confident of God's uh, sovereign plan. Jesus even talking about, he even as the, as the disciples are there and they're sad and they're crying, and they're like, well, you know, we thought this Jesus guy was going to be the Savior. And Jesus says, you're slow of heart and understanding. Do you not know? And it says that he began with, with Moses and going throughout the entire scriptures, he showed them what Jesus, what the Messiah would have to do. There was a complete and utter confidence in God's sovereign plan. No questions. But Jesus, interestingly enough, Jesus as the Son of Man is presented as the great physician as well. And maybe this shouldn't surprise you and I because, I mean, Luke, after all, was a physician. He was a man given to uh, all kinds of, of uh, uh, education, and he, would have, uh, he was a man of detail. And by physician, we don't necessarily mean what we mean by physician, although it certainly would have included that. He, he would have been a very educated man in a lot of different fields and would have been knowledgeable about a lot of different things, um, history and, and, and uh, being, being obviously among them. But yet he, the Luke, this physician, presents Jesus as the great physician. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, it's interesting. Yes, Jesus does healings in other, in other Gospels. But do you know, in the Gospel of Luke, there are 13 healing episodes. 13. Jesus heals more than in any other, any other Gospel. And not only that, Jesus touches people in Luke. You say, well, what the heck does that have to do with anything? 
Well, let me tell you what that has to do with something. Because Jesus, who is perfectly, ritually, righteously clean, goes around touching the unclean to heal them. It's unheard of. It is unheard of. You say, well, that's not really a big deal. Yeah, well, I mean, get somebody with the flu and, and you want to go around them? Probably not. Much less leprosy and all these other diseases in the first century, right, that they had going on. So for this Jesus, who is presented as the Son of God, who goes around not just healing people, but touching them, it is a massively big deal. He shows compassion to them. And so we find 13 different episodes in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus' great mercy and healing. And in touching them, he's not just being gracious to them, but he is showing that he identifies them with them. And what I mean by that is that he understands their suffering. He is empathetic toward their needs, right? And, and so when I say that, and I know I have to be careful today because I know when we say, well, I understand where you're at, that usually means all kinds of different crazy things in our society and our culture today. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. When I say Jesus identifies with them, Jesus understands their hurting and their need for healing and their need for grace. He understands their, the, the fact that they need wellness brought to them. And he does that. And not just any, any old way, but he does it while simultaneously taking up the mantle of the king. He also, in addition to this, the healings are, are, are the actualization of the coming of the kingdom of God in which, as Revelation 21.4 rightly tells us, there is coming a day there will be no more sickness. There will be no more disease. There will be no more tears. There will be no more nothing. And in Christ's coming, do you know what Jesus was doing? He was beginning to roll back the effects of the fall in Eden, establishing his kingdom. Now, surely that won't be entirely done until the the kingdom fully comes and Christ fully comes, but that is what Jesus was doing. Jesus is in actualizing their healing. He is presenting the coming of the kingdom of God among mankind. Luke also presents himself, though, or presents another theme here, and one that maybe you, maybe you don't recognize or maybe we wouldn't recognize right off the bat. But Luke would rightly be known as the writer of the Holy Spirit. And we say, well, well, surely we could see that in the Gospel of or the Book of Acts. But what about the Gospel of Luke? Well, no. So, so for instance, the Holy Spirit is present at Jesus' conception and birth. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism. The Holy Spirit empowers Jesus to preach and teach and heal. The Holy Spirit guides Jesus throughout his ministry. The Holy Spirit is present at Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. The Holy Spirit empowers then the disciples, even at the end of the Gospel of Luke, beginning into the 
beginning of the book of Acts, to go and spread the gospel. Luke is very careful to focus in on not just Jesus as the Son of Man, but he is very clearly evident that he understands that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. And so he presents the work of the Father and the Spirit as necessary to the work of the Son on earth. But then there's one more theme here that I think comes Came, comes to us. And that is, that is holiness and sanctification. That is that as a result of the kingdom coming and breaking into the world, right, and taking, taking the world by force, right, and so by doing that, through the, through the preaching of the gospel, right, in doing that, I think there is, a, there is an understanding that as God brings and leads people to repentance and to faith, there is a, a, an unquestioning connection between faith and re- repentance and faith and sanctification and holiness. That is that God's call, Jesus' call, as we'll look, particularly in Luke 9, that it's the call to follow Christ. is not a call to just pray a prayer and, and, and believe, quote-unquote, But it's actually a way of discipleship because Jesus says that unless you take up your cross and follow me, just like in Mark, he talks about this. Matthew, or, or I'm sorry, Luke is no less a demander of the kingdom of God coming into the life of a human being or becoming and a human being becoming part of the kingdom of God. That is that it makes a radical life changing difference. That humility and service then are markers of our sanctification. And that addressing Jesus, he, Jesus over and over again throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but specifically here in Luke, calls out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the religious leaders over and over and over and over again. We find the woes that are given to the Pharisees here in the Gospel of Luke. And then in in, in Luke 11, we find Jesus constantly, consistently, over and over again, just telling the, the hypocrites to stop. And within this, then, within all of these themes, I think there are a couple of key texts that we really do have to pay attention to as we go through here. The first is what is called the Magnificant, the Song of Mary. In Luke 1, 46-55, there's a song that is sung, a, a praise of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus, after she learns that she will give birth to the Messiah. She sings this beautiful song. And do you know what this beautiful song is reminiscent of? It quotes almost exactly verbatim from the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel. Then you have the Benedictus in Luke 1, 68-79. That is the song of praise that is sung by John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. By the way, the one uh, that's where our son's middle name comes from is, is from, from there. But our song that is sung of praise by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, after he is filled with the Holy Spirit. In Luke 2, 29-32, we have something that's called the Nunc Didymus. A song of praise that's sung by Simeon, an old man who was waiting for the Messiah to come. We have the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, 20-49, which is, by the way, not the same as the Sermon on the Mount. It is different. 
it is very different. There are some similarities, but it is not the same. Luke 10, 25-37, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. A parable that Jesus tells to illustrate the importance of the importance of that it's not the hearers of the law that are made righteous in the eyes of God, but the doers. Sound familiar? It should. James. James. Which is not to suggest that faith or that, that salvation is by works. Certainly not, right? James does not, does not ever tell us that. But rather, it is an illustration that it's not simply those who claim to follow Jesus who are righteous with God, but those who actually follow the commands of Christ and the commands of God that are saved. The parable then of the prodigal son, or actually we should say probably the prodigal sons, right? Because there's not just one prodigal here, there's two. There's the older brother and the younger son. Just because the younger son went way off, it's clear that the older brother was still, he may never have left the farm, but he certainly was far from his father's heart. And it's a parable that Jesus tells to illustrate the love of God. Because you have to understand that in telling of the story of the prodigal son, it is a story between the Jew and the Gentile. In the Lord's Prayer, in Luke 11, 2-4. It's a prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And then again in Luke 22, 20-24, as, as with Matthew and Luke, um, it's very important, right? The passion narrative. That we understand the story of Jesus' crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection ultimately. So, why, why do this? Well, as I've, already, as I've always said to you as your pastor, I, I will remind you that we must be, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not against preaching topical messages when things come up that need to be addressed. However, I think the bulk of our, my preaching should be, I'm convicted that it should be verse by verse, book by book. And I think that Luke is a great way for us to make a couple different applications that I think are necessary in the world in which we live, in the world in which it seems to be changing second by second. It's not even day by day now. It seems to be second by second. But it's simply this. Here's the first application I think that going through Luke will really help us grab hold of. It's this. As I've already mentioned before, the already but not yet tension that is there of the kingdom. That is that Jesus taught that the kingdom of God is not something that is far, far, far away, but is rather something that is already present in the world. And yet it is still also coming. It's not here, right? So the kingdom of God is, is here, right? Because we make up the kingdom, right? God's people do. We do. We make up the kingdom of God. And so it is something that's already broken through, broken into the world. The cross then serves as a beachhead to which God invades the world. And so we are reminded of the already but not yet tension of the kingdom. And we show that we are kingdom citizens. We are kingdom citizens as we love those who are our enemies, as we do good to those who hate us, as we, do, as we forgive those who have wronged us, but as we boldly and fearlessly and unapologetically preach the gospel and call sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. And we expect that that's going to have a very real change in our lives, in our families' lives, and yes, even in our culture's life. We also understand, I think we have a, we have a, 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 
even more, uh, or a, um, an addition, an, a, a picture that's added to our understanding of Jesus the Messiah. Born of Bethlehem, descendant of King David, crucified, resurrected, and is our basis of the hope of our salvation. I think another application that we'll see as we go through the Gospel of Luke is that, that we are called to repent and to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. That is that Jesus called sinners to repent of their sins and to believe in him as the son of God who has come, the second and last Adam. As Paul will say in the first and second Corinthians, he will talk about Jesus, that, Paul, that Adam was the first Adam, but he is Christ being the second and last and final Adam. Just as Paul would say, all, just as all in Adam die, so all who are in Christ live. And that as a result, we are forgiven of our sins and receive right standing with God and the gift of eternal life and even victory, if I would dare say that. Victory. Christ is not only the one who forgives our sins, he most certainly does. He's the one who gives us new life. Absolutely he does. But he is also our, he is also our Christus victor, the one who overcomes all the enemies. That we are called then, I think, to love our neighbors. Love our neighbors. And this means loving and caring for all who need the gospel. That we are called to be peacemakers in the world. Now, this doesn't mean, certainly, that we, are, we, we never seek out or, or we never uh, participate in any kind of a conflict, right? Because we're told, as much as it depends on us, live at peace with all men meaning that there will be times when our faith and our values come in direct conflict with the world, in which times we must not and we cannot, we cannot abdicate our responsibility to boldly proclaim Christ and our faith in him. We are called to then witness for Christ. Jesus called his disciples to be his witnesses, right, in the world, and we share in that commitment, that call, that command. Go and make disciples of all nations, we're told. So much so that Luke ends up writing a second book about what that looks like. Jesus, in Matthew, we just have the, you know, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. But Luke actually shows us what that looked like when the church did exactly that. And now we, living in our culture, in our system, are called to preach King Jesus unapologetically, fearlessly, without compromise. And yet we are called to empathize with those who are in need. Empathy for some people is a bad word. It's a filthy word. It's a dirty word. But in reality, Jesus empathized with the least. Someone goes going so far as to place his hand upon them. We are called to call everyone of all nations, to repentance and faith in Christ, leaving God to save sinners for his own glory. These are just a few things I hope that as we go through the Gospel of Luke, you will find helpful and you will see, I hope, a greater and have a greater passion for Christ and his word, that we will see Christ in all of his glory and all as he is presented in the Gospel of Luke. So to that end, let us pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the truth of your word. It's uncompromising. 
God, it is, it is given to us and we are not to compromise the truth of God's word. May we never do that. May we never, for the sake of becoming palatable to the world, may we never seek to compromise with the world. Let us instead boldly stand upon the word of God, loving Christ, serving Christ, calling our culture and our world, our, the nations and our own family and friends, co-workers, neighbors, to repent of their sin and to flee to Christ through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. May you help us to look to Christ. May you cause us to love those who are far from Christ by preaching the gospel of Christ to them and calling them to repent. May you cause us, Father, then to honor you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.